0: you're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this episode, I chat with David Rose, an entrepreneur, MIT Media Lab instructor, and author of Enchanted Objects. We talk about which objects we should enchant and how to avoid being overwhelmed by object communication. David also weighs in on the AI debate and outlines the four potential ways he sees the Internet of Things shaking out. Enjoy the show. You've written a book titled Enchanted Objects. Why did you choose the adjective enchanted?
1: Well, I think the industry is using lots and lots of different terms for what this connectivity in everything will mean. Mm -hmm. And I've I've been to ubiquitous computing conferences, pervasive computing conferences, Internet of Things, things that think is what we called it at the Media Lab for for a while. Um, And for me, uh, I've been a fan of magic and of uh, sort of studying the tropes that magicians have used to control like the emotional arc of a trick, for example. And, um, And I think enchantment for me sort of sets a high bar for designers To consider not just like the mechanism of what's happening but also consider how people engage and how are people delighted and what's their emotional reaction to whatever the new connectivity or new sensor or new display is that is in one of these objects so when I say enchanted objects I really mean Internet of Things where nearly everything is connected but also things that you want that you desire and that delight you
0: right and and so what objects should we enchant Just everything? Yeah,
1: well, it's really hard to think of something that you couldn't
0: enchant. I mean, from
1: a size perspective, like chips are getting smaller and smaller. From a cost perspective, you know, you could put chipsets for less than a few dollars in almost everything. I invented some medication packaging that knows if you've taken your meds or not. And it will, you know, send a text message so you don't forget. Or send a weekly email to a loved one that shows you, you know. And that's like the most mundane thing. There are three and a half billion... um, uh, amber vials that are distributed in the US every year. Mm-hmm. So, boy, like if you can sort of embed it in medication packaging, like what could you not enchant? Right. So, I think it has more to do. I mean, the, the limits of this I think are more around how are these things designed and are they designed to be polite? Are they designed to respect your attention and not overwhelm you? Are they designed to play nice together? And those are much more about uh, good design and less about either size constraints or cost constraints or battery constraints. Mm-hmm.
0: So things that are really solving a a problem or addressing a, a user behavior kind of situation
1: yeah i do think you know problem solving is a good place to start although i think there are lots of new interactions that may delight people in ways that don't exactly solve problems mm-hmm. uh, but when i you know when i when i encourage my students or i do workshops with companies around this um, i usually get them to go for objects that are the most common meaning the things you touch the most often or buy the most often like uh Connected refrigerator the worst thing because how many times do you upgrade your fridge, right? Okay. <laughs> but a connected trash can like that measures some of the same information, like things go in and out of the fridge, but then they also go into the trash can. So if you want to do supply chain management for the house, <laughs> it might be like a trash can that should be connected. But like I'm intrigued with silverware, with shoes, with jewelry, with clothing, with glass, you know, thing, things that people have. Um, they already acknowledge that there's redundancy in their life around these things, and they're usually differentiated by fashion, not by function. I mean, those are sort of mature technologies that I think would be prone or susceptible to a little bit of um, differentiation with, um, with technology.
0: Right. And you mentioned earlier avoiding becoming overwhelmed. How, how do we do that?
1: Mm. Well, I started a company called Ambient Devices, and its sole mission was to try to figure out how do you put information in people's cognitive periphery, meaning how do you design things that are that use the pre-attentive part of your brain, the part of your brain that senses whether is there a window open over there and is there um, wind that's blowing something up there that's moving a little bit or so is there a pattern on the wall or a color. All of those phenomena of using light and pattern and texture are all pre-attentive, meaning your brain processes them in parallel, mm. it's non-distracting, it happens in less than 250 milliseconds. And that's the sort of design space, I think, for the best types of interactions with objects because they don't tend to overwhelm you. And you, tend, and you don't perceive them as being a cognitive load because they aren't a cognitive load. So, you know, have you, no one complains like, I have too many windows in my house and so I'm really <laughs> distracted by my windows or art on the wall or something. I mean, some of the best interfaces are the ones where um, you, f- you have a force feedback. You know, mm-hmm. you feel the doorknob is harder to open on the hospital door because, Someone's sleeping inside or the door, the door handle on your car is harder to open because a bike is passing or your wallet is harder to open because you're blowing through your monthly budgets or, you know, I mean, all of these things can be, um, those are not just, those are not just places to paint displays or pixels, but it's also ways to um, affect or actuate the things that we touch, you know, right. drawers and cabinetry and that sort of stuff.
0: Right. And there's some visual things, too. I've seen the, the umbrella that will have the light at the mm. very end that just mm-hmm. blinks before you walk out the door to say, hey, it's going to rain. Take yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that was
1: inspired by uh, Frodo, and uh, the and and Frodo had a sword called Sting. Do you remember its function? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so it knew when orcs were nearby. So I thought, well, we should do umbrellas that know when rain is nearby, right. you know, and just sort of glows blue in the same way. But for me, that sort of emblemizes this uh, idea that these interfaces can be really simple if they're, if they're embedded in many, many more things. So once the apps that are in your phone can sort of leap out into the world onto nearly everything, then you don't need like a complicated operating system to swipe and double tap and all the things you do because then each, you know, the umbrella doesn't need to show anything else except for weather and it never needs upgrades, it never makes you feel stupid, you know, it j- can just do one thing.
0: Right. And kind of related to this, in a recent interview, you noted that there were really only four ways the Internet of Things would turn out. Mm. What, what were those four ways?
1: Yeah, so I, in the first part of the book, I talk about four futures for our relationship to technology. And uh, the first one is Black Glass Labs, so it's sort of the world of apps and the world of, you know, painting pixels on more and more surfaces. Um, I think I think that has a fatal flaw, which is it, it consumes too much of our attention. Another place we could locate technology in relationship to ourselves is by embedding it in and on ourselves. This is sort of the superpower fantasy, you know, the the Iron Man fantasy, um, which I think you know sort of we got we've gone down that path with Google Glass a little bit, and I think it's problematic to put um, technology in front of our face or on our face because it harms social interaction. So, but that's another diff- very different future than than phones. Mm-hmm. Um, another Place is social robots, right? So rather than putting it on us, we could just put it on them right like we could just have other things that take care of us sort of like the downton abbey fantasy like different people to drive you or to clothe you or to cook for you um and those people could you know be personality you know could be personality agents um and i think that that future is flawed um even though there's a large robotics community that's pursuing it uh for what was described as the uncanny valley Mm -hmm. which is the closer those things get to human likeness the more they will just our emotional response to them will fall off a cliff and we will feel like they threaten our own humanity, you know, sort of like Frankenstein or the Jewish folklore Gollum. Um, you know, there's, they're sort of too close to ourselves, so they threaten right. us. So I think the fourth way for us to interact with tech is the most promising and most desirable, which is to put a little bit of AI in lots and lots of things. So that's mm-hmm. what I call enchanted objects.
0: Right. And so where do you fall on that AI spectrum of the robots will save us all to the robot will kill us all. Mm.
1: (laughs) Well, I think there's an important distinction to be made around the difference between big AI and incremental AI. Mm -hmm. So big AI is, you know, Hal, who is supposed to be omniscient and all-knowing and really like exert force in our life, sort of like Skynet. Um, And I think the way, the the more desirable way forward is sort of uh, like enchanted objects is to atomize functionality and embed a little bit of smarts in lots of things. And I see that That is just incremental tools that we want and I don't think those incremental tools are going to take over I think we all want better tools we're all willing to try a new app or new a new um, object and like that those things won't threaten jobs they will just allow us to be more effective and and hopefully more efficient
0: and so changing directions just a little bit, uh, how do you define design? And are you finding that your definition is changing with this growth in technology? Mm,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, Tim Brown from, from IDEO described this, you know, T that we all have, where we're deep in some skill sets and shallow in others. And I think um, as, as sort of the world of hardware design combines with software, combines with experience design, combines with psychology more and more... Um, We have to be liberal arts generalists and sort of Renaissance people and in terms of considering all of the you know Psychological drives that are involved in why people adopt new things, or why we fall out of love with new things, or how certain technologies overpromise. Like I think one of the problems with Siri and Cortana is that the designers are had too much hubris. Like they said, you can ask Siri any question. Like it's incredibly hard to fulfill on the promise of ask any question. Right. And if and if we had more of a framing of, you know, she's the perfect person to ask about searching for restaurants or searching for directions. Mm-hmm. then she would work, you know, 95% of the time rather than failing you 40% of the time, which is my experience. Right. So I think, and that's, you know, doing that well is um, certainly an understanding of expectation setting and of psychology. And, you know, you could say a lot of that can be solved in terms of the design of these things with multifunctional teams mm-hmm. but i but i think it's more and more expected that people will have will be conversant in uh sort of all aspects of design with aesthetics and ethics and and expectation setting and psychology and experience design and so i think you know it's a good place for o'reilly to be right now because, <laughs> because there's an expectation that that you will have some uh some dexterity in all aspects
0: and kind of related to that, the term Internet of Things, what does that mean to you as a designer? And what aspects of these emerging technologies do you do you find most consequential? Well, I think one of the things
1: that's really interesting about Internet of Things is its impact on business models. And so this is where... You know, design means a little bit of MBA as well because uh, I ran into uh, a, a guy who f- who founded an intelligent toothbrush, you know, an internet-connected toothbrush company um, last week, and it's called the Beam Brush. So it's a twenty-nine dollar. Uh, you know like brawn type you know toothbrush and it talks to your phone and measures whether you've brushed or not and I have two little kids and Mm -hmm. you know we totally need a a gamified system to motivate them to brush for more than fit 10 seconds Um, but I said you know what's your business model for for this device like are you how many brushes do you think you're going to sell or do you have a razors and blades model you're going to sell a lot of uh, bristles and give away the you know the the bottom part of the brush you know and he said actually I'm going to I'm going to um I'm gonna start a dental insurance company because 120 million people in the US don't have dental insurance because it's expensive. It's like 30 bucks a month for right. dental insurance. And you're, we're all optimistic. Like, ah, eh, we'll brush, it'll be fine. But he said, if people use the Beam Brush and we know, that they're, you know what their hygiene habits are, then we can offer a second tier, which is $10 dental insurance. Oh, wow. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. So rather than like the first business model would have been sell widgets, the second business model would have been like sell the consumables that the widgets use. But then this is like a tertiary business model, which is to sell the behavioral change um, ramification in terms of financing their risk for, for, for dental um, interventions or whatever. So I, like that's really interesting to me that, yeah. these, that these objects can spin up so many different business models.
0: And so for my last question, and kind of related to what you were just talking about, what people or projects are you following, what are you finding personally exciting mm. these days?
1: Well, what I gave a talk about today, which is what I find most personally exciting, because um, I wrote the talk yesterday, <laughs> <laughs> is um, just sort of what the future of photography looks like. Okay. Um, because I, I, what I see when I look around at all of the connected things is people are using cameras because they're just dirt cheap, mm-hmm. and they actually, actually sense a lot of information. So. People are putting cameras mm-hmm. in the tip of a pen in order to understand what's being written, or in the tip of a paintbrush at the Media Lab called the iO brush, so you can sample a color or a, pe- mm-hmm. or a texture a pattern and then paint with that color. or they're putting cameras like in trees for hunters or they're putting them in bike helmets to look at optical flow to see how fast you're biking mm-hmm. um, or skiing helmets. Um, and I see and I've been wearing a camera that's sort of sewed into my clothing called the narrative app mm-hmm. and that takes a photo automatically every 30 seconds. It's sort of like what cops are wearing as you know body cameras, um, and but these all these photos need image recognition, and so I've been working. You know, that's to me that's sort of where Internet of Things meets the cloud meets um, the elastic compute capabilities that Amazon offers. Because mm-hmm. so at, at this uh, company that I'm running called Ditto, we am, <laughs> we have three to four hundred uh, big multi-headed servers. Uh, in amazon 's cloud, like running continuously looking at all of the photos that people are posting with their narrative clips or with uh, on Instagram or on Tumblr or on um, all the public sources of photos so what 's really exciting, I think, is the you know where the all of these sensors cast off data exhaust that requires. Uh, machine learning up in the cloud that reveal patterns about who's who's into beach vacations. Like, if I looked at your last two years of photos, I'd probably be able to see like, are you uh, are you a foodie? Are you into sports? Or what kind of vacations do you enjoy? Uh, you know, what are your other affinities? Are you shopping for a car? Are you shopping for furniture? Like, you take the pictures of the things that you're right. interested in. And so, by looking at all these photos, we really are starting to see people's affinities for different products. Like, how people are using frenchies mustard or chobani yogurt or um, when are people eating their ben and jerrys it's actually Mm. late shifted after the beer is the ben and (laughs) Jerry's. is the ben and jerry spike Um, (laughs) and uh, so we can so the brands are buying this data but then also i feel like this what i talked about this morning is those photos with with a little bit of structure with computer vision become actionable Mm. so the photos that you post that i find inspiring of your beach vacation or something will will be able to be actionable. I'll be able to say, how much does it cost to go to that place or book a table on open table at that restaurant? Because it looks like you're having a great time. Or I want a stand up paddleboard, like find me a stand up paddleboard on eBay right now, because I see your photo of the same thing. Yeah. And so I think that has ramifications for advertising and and commerce, right? Because then, that's where people's eyeballs are, are on their social streams, looking at their friends' photos. Right. And if that's where the attention is, then that's where commerce wants to go and so i i think one of the most exciting things and it's sort of a you know a capitalist idea but (laughs) 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 but those that's that's the future of commerce like social commerce is the future of how all of these sensors will contribute to a lot of photos will contribute to people acting through these photos
0: right right interesting well thank you very much for talking with me today you're
1: welcome it's been fun
0: You can reach David through his Twitter handle, at David Rose. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.